0: Powercast with your hosts Jane Steinberg and David Piette.
1: This episode of the Powercast is brought to you by audible.com. Download a free audiobook of your choice today at audiblepodcast.com/powercast. that's audiblepodcast.com/powercast And now on with the show. So I was fascinated to hear about Seth Nettermeyer by his son Andy. And Andy comes across as such a sweet, self-effacing guy. And I think that's typical of a lot of the people who work in the technical aspect of the movie industry. You know, you have these high-powered stars, agents, executives, and you've got thousands of people behind the scenes who are just extraordinarily talented, and they put all that stuff together. But also, I was interested in the fact that we have here a physicist, Seth Nettermeyer, who worked on the Manhattan Project, and then was interested in a lot of things related to the paranormal and you know a lot of scientists don't want to admit that that's true
2: but a lot of them behind closed doors are deeply interested in this and i think it's fascinating that here's andy's father who is one of the key movers and shakers in the realm of nuclear experimentation and research and so he this is a guy who gets a really deep look at the inner workings of matter and Comes to perhaps some internal conclusions about the idea that perhaps matter and the nature of reality are far more involved than we really want to admit. I really like the fact that he uh, was reaching out to other scientists also to to talk about these things. I mean, that that one note to Harvey. I mean that that uh, that letter that Andy read from. I mean, talk about a coup, Gene. I mean, how many times do you get an inner look? at someone like Niedermeyer. I mean, there it is.
1: Only on the (laughs) Paracast. That's right, because we get people here who don't come on the regular shows, and Andy isn't seeking publicity. He's got his own gig that he does very well, but he's just quietly interested in this stuff, and it's really fascinating that All this came together, we could get him on the show, get these remembrances of his Mm -hmm. interest in the subject, of his dad's interest in the subject, and maybe now we'll start doing more research about it. Now, speaking of interest in the subject, and this is something that will lead us to our discussion on this week's episode, the fact that we see in the New York Times an op-ed piece from Nick Pope. A gentleman who worked with the Ministry of Defense in England on UFO research. We read the story from Edgar Mitchell about his longtime interest in UFOs. Nothing that he hadn't said 10 years ago. I know that people have been saying, why don't we get him on the show? Well, he's not saying anything that you haven't read. This is all 10 years old. He's not a UFO expert. He just happens to be someone who is interested in the subject and has talked to people who have information about it, but I don't really think he has anything to really contribute to the enigma, I might be wrong.
2: Well, I don't know know that there's smoking gun stuff. I I got to speak with Dr. Mitchell very briefly at the X conference uh, this last spring. And you get the sense that this is a guy who has spoken to an awful lot of people inside of the Air Force, certainly inside of NASA. But we also have to remember that he's kind of been on the sort of that bleeding edge of New Age thinking for quite a while. Now, let's qualify this. This is a guy who has walked on the moon. And and I think that a human being who can make that claim, you have to wonder what that does, Gene, to someone's psyche. You know, to go up and walk on the moon, to look back at the Earth from that perspective. You look at the kinds of experiences that mere mortals have on Earth that ignite in them a deep sense of uh, sort of religious belief you know, they can see something or hear something, hear a voice, and all of a sudden, you know, they're uh, they're deeply immersed.
1: Well, in if the nothing world else, Genesis, is just it. that experience. Yes, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, totally convert your feelings and belief systems about things. And I'm wondering, yeah. he's not the only person who walked the moon, whether other astronauts quietly have yeah. similar levels of interest but just really haven't voiced it. Well, look at Neil Armstrong. This is the first guy to walk on the moon
2: then sort of famously stops talking about it. I mean, this was a, the first man who walked on the moon. You'd think that in his life he would have spoken a lot about the topic. He would have been in the public uh, eye. And uh, I've always found that to be very, very uh, sort of mystifying why Neil Armstrong goes from you know being the first man on the moon and comes back and doesn't really want to talk about the experience, doesn't certainly in his his later life he really has remained almost oddly quiet about it i i wonder about that is there's some switch that was thrown in his brain occupying that really truly important distinction i mean this is the first human that set foot on another celestial body that is a huge huge thing that that, that resonates and will resonate throughout all of human history, and yet he's been very quiet about it. So I wonder, with these guys, what kind of what kind of epiphanies did they have? And in the case of of, of Dr. Mitchell, I'm going to guess that this was already a guy who, when he went into the space program, had an open, inquisitive mind. Maybe had some of that those seeds of New Age thought in him, and then with something like a trip to the moon and back. You have to believe that then that really sort of took hold inside of him and and expanded to some rather extreme points. I found him to be highly intelligent, and I think he'd make a great guest. I actually, uh, if I'm not wrong, I had gotten in touch with his daughter about a year and a half ago, and, and he at that time was not doing. Sort of the small show circuit like ours, so perhaps it would be time to try again.
1: Well, but I'm yes, guessing. At this I was point, thinking because he had talked about, about this, there wouldn't be anything yeah. new, but certainly just uh-huh. to have his remembrances, just the perspective of somebody who walks on the moon, takes a look at the Earth, takes a look at the stars, yeah. and what is your perspective? How did oh, that man. change your life? That's got to be fascinating.
2: I, you know, I'm guessing we would end up asking him some questions that perhaps other shows and other journalists would not ask him. I'd like to think that we we serve that role in this wacky sandbox of the paranormal.
1: Well, today it's not so wacky because we have a very intelligent guest, very level-headed woman, Leslie Kane, and we'll talk more about that and some other stuff, a lot of other stuff, Mm -hmm. coming up on the Paracast.
0: I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore.
1: Hey neighbors, as we said, this episode of the PowerCast is being brought to you by Audible.com and you can download a free audiobook of your choice. And you can select from over 40,000 audiobooks and lots, lots more featuring bestsellers about the paranormal, about UFOs, novels. You pick it and when you get the book that you want, just download to your Apple iPod or over 400 other devices. All right, you can download your free audiobook today, today at slash powercast. That's slash powercast.
2: Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com. Where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you've heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too.
1: Brain Tonic, the smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, super safe with no caffeine crash, just great fuel for your cranium, no chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic, that's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic, again the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today. never next Leslie Kane when David and I were talking before you joined us we were thinking about the recent developments that have brought UFOs again to the public's attention and we have of course, The repetition of Edgar Mitchell's interest in UFOs. We have that op-ed piece in the New York Times from Nick Pope and your response, by the way, which was one of the most popular responses to, of course, asking for investigation of UFOs. Do you think all this is going to have some positive impact on creating a climate for some sort of disclosure?
3: Oh, that's, you know, that's, again, uh, it's hard for me to speculate. I mean, I always think developments like this, of course, are positive. They always, you know, add us, move us in the right direction and help the situation. Although I don't think the Edgar Mitchell thing is really as significant as it's, people seem to be making out, but uh, I don't know. That's just my particular take on it. But, um, before you came I, on,
1: I just simply remarked the fact that he said the same thing 10 years ago.
3: I know, and there's a, there's an, a videotape of him basically saying those things. I think that Stephen Greer excerpted it, and it was maybe clips of it were also in Out of the Blue, as I recall.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, um, so I don't know. For some reason, it's just really uh, taking off right now, and you know, I haven't seen any documentation of the claims that he's making. So, um, you know, I I'm I respect the man, but there's not a whole lot as a journalist that I can really do with it, except to. Repeat what he says, which I'm not going to do unless I know a little bit more about what he's talking about. So anyway, I think that the, uh, the article by Nick Pope though is a real breakthrough, regardless of people may feel that it's much too focused on safety issues and all of that. But the bottom line is the New York Times, I don't think has ever run a straight piece on UFOs. And as far as I'm aware, and months before this piece came out, I think it was I don't remember if it was in January or February. They ran a terrible ridicule piece about the release of the MOD files in Britain. I don't know if you guys read that. You probably I did, read it. right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, and and actually what's interesting is that's what precipitated this op ed piece. So in a way, you know, sometimes things have good outcomes that you don't anticipate. But Nick had actually been interviewed by the writer of that ridicule piece. And he called her up afterwards and said, just had a discussion with her about it and she suggested that he write an op-ed piece for The Times, expressing his position, and she helped facilitate him getting to the right editors and all that kind of stuff that you have to do to get into The Times. So, and this piece was—I mean, he began the process months ago of writing this piece, and then they finally agreed to it about a month ago, and then they sat on it and they were going to run it, you know, one week, and then they didn't. And it's all about, I think, just trying to find the right day when The Times feel they they got an opening for it. But um, yeah, Originally, that was going group. to be
1: Senator McCain's space, you see. Who
0: knows? Exactly.
3: And they
1: rejected I Senator they McCain. The right and they yeah. said, okay, we'll take Nick Pope. That's another story, too. Did they edit <laughs> right. Nick Pope's piece much at all, and, or is it pretty yep, much the way it was? It they did. Did. Oh, Okay.
3: And that's another point. I mean, it's much shorter than he originally wrote it, and they did edit it. I have not seen his original draft, but... And I'm sure, you know, you could always talk to Nick about it more, but he did tell me that they, and you can see, I mean, it's quite short. I'm looking at it now, and, you know, I don't think it's the, the, you know, 600 words, which is often the sort of cutoff point for these articles. I mean, it's a short piece. And he said they they cut a lot of it, including, by the way, his reference in the article to the Coalition for Freedom of Information and, and the work that we're doing. They, he mentioned me and Fife Symington and a few others that are associated You know, he was saying, remember at the end he says, um, you know, the United States and the Air Force or NASA should reopen its investigation. And then he had a a line or two about what we're at, that we are, there is actually now an effort underway to do just that in the, in America. And here are the people that are behind that effort. But they took that out. And he also said that told me that they really wanted him to emphasize this kind of terror safety, you know, terrorism risk bit. He did that partly in response to their request. You have to tailor articles for the person you're writing them for. But getting something in The New York Times that's, that's serious about UFOs is a huge breakthrough. And I, um, I really feel like it's a major, major milestone that we've overcome here because they've never done anything like this before.
1: Well, next is The Wall Street Journal.
3: Maybe
2: so, <laughs> the Wall Street Journal has actually run some u f o pieces in recent times, which which is very odd but but also very true. I would like to point out a couple of things about um pope 's op ed piece. sadly, it, the last two lines i mean you 're saying uh, Leslie, that they removed the references to to you and uh, to your organization um Sadly, the two last lines, I mean, in the first sentence, it would not imply that the country has suddenly started believing in little green men. Oh. It would simply recognize the possibility that radar alone cannot always tell us what's out there. So I think it's very sad that Nick himself ended up in some context putting in the words little green men. I mean, the, 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 that's the terminology you don't want to see associated I, mean, I, with I a
3: totally agree. Piece. Yeah, I know. You know. I was very unhappy with that. And I don't, he may not have even written that. I have a feeling he didn't. It doesn't sound to me like something Nick would ever write.
0: They might was, have
1: I, forced that upon him in the editorial process.
3: Or they may have just stuck it in. You know, and the interesting thing is, too, I mean, they suddenly told him on Monday that they were going to run this on Tuesday. He was literally flying back that day from MUFON. He had like a 12, you know, he had flying all the way from California to London. He happened to stop in Chicago for like a 45-minute changeover. He checked his BlackBerry, and suddenly there were these urgent emails from the New York Times, and they had to do all this fact-checking with him. And he had like, he ran to this internet cafe at O'Hare Airport, he, he thought it was quite ironic that it was at O'Hare. That's actually. Perfect, kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had to deal with their, their questions for, you know, like every quote he had in here, he had to provide them with a document. And here he was with a, not even his own computer, so he was frantically trying to provide them with whatever he could to get the piece to hmm. run. And he just made it before he had to rush for his flight. So it's quite possible that he didn't even have time. And that's my sense from talking to him, that he didn't even have time to really scrutinize what they were doing. And, and because of that, he just said to them, you know, go ahead and do it however you're going to do it. He sort of gave them carte blanche to, to run his piece yeah. the way they felt it should be run. So I suspect that they took the liberty to put that little green man thing. It's really infuriating.
2: Yeah, it's you just know, very it's less- frustrating.
3: You well, know, the implication of the article to me is that the reason we should be monitoring these, it's all about radar and just how we have to further monitor and prove our radar. It's nothing about what these things might be or, you know, what the phenomenon might be, or even that there is a phenomenon that's real. I mean, it just, you know, it's it's a pretty uh, one-sided perspective, but I, I still think it's it's a good piece and it's a major breakthrough, just the fact that it appeared in the New York Times.
1: And the fact is that, yes, if these things are going on, There is a national security concern, because if we have aircraft that we can't identify, if we have aircraft that displays capabilities beyond our own technology, then we have to know that. And that's job number one for any military organization before we even get to where that thing comes from.
3: And I agree with you, and I think Richard Haynes, a lot of people at this MUFON conference were making that very point, and it's a very important point. And I think it's it's a point, too, that can that will be heard by the authorities. It's a door in on this issue, and it's a valid one.
2: Well, I know so, that there uh, are people that, that took exception with the framing of the piece being about you know, aerial security. Personally, I think that is a, a, a good approach, and certainly we've seen NARCAP adopt that approach in trying to remove certain terminology and, and to change that framework. I mean, they NARCAP refuses to use the term UFO. They mm-hmm. feel it's essentially contaminated at this point, and... So they're going with unidentified aerial phenomena.
1: Well, also yeah, with absolutely. APRO, the organization that was very popular in the '50s, '60s, and mm-hmm. '70s, they would call it UAO, unidentified aerial object. Aerial,
0: yeah.
3: Right. Um, no, I mean, and I, I understand why they do that. I spent a lot of time with with Haynes, and we had actually a NARCAP meeting, staff meeting there, and that I was I attended. So, and a lot of a number of the speakers use the word UAP. I understand why. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I generally don't because I want people to understand exactly what I'm talking about. But I also will usually try and define what I mean by UFO because people don't have the correct definition in their minds for what it what it is. That's the that's the bottom line problem.
1: Well, that's the definition. UFOs are spaceships. That's it. They have to be spaceships. They can't be anything else.
3: Exactly. And they, they're 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 alien spaceships or they're extraterrestrial craft. And that's not really what you obviously we all know that. Well, that's UFOs because mean. it's
1: identified folks, ladies and gentlemen. Unidentified means we don't know what it is. Despite the people who want to give us all this nonsense about exopolitics, how could we even begin to understand the politics of an alien civilization when we, one, don't know there is an alien civilization that is currently visiting us? We just know we have things that are pretty weird. Number two, even if we knew it was alien, We don't know anything about their society unless they come down here and choose to tell us. And I have a feeling they wouldn't tell us the truth. And that's another thing, too. You have all these people running around saying the Space Brothers say this, they say that. Well, folks, how do you know they'll say anything? Because they're here. They want to protect themselves no matter how advanced they are. If they are physical beings, flesh and blood, whatever, they can be killed. They can be hurt they're going to protect themselves they're going to work in their interests not ours how do we know they're telling us the truth
3: very good point point. and I, I think you'd have to ask these exopolitics people that i think most of their information comes from channeling and things like that which they seem to give a lot of credence to or maybe they communicate with the dolphins and they get information from them I've, well, i,
1: I tell don't you, know those dolphins I, have a civilization that you know they like that in chocolate you know <laughs>
3: exactly exactly so I, I'm more interested in the in people like Nick Pope, who I think are really making a, an impression, and Dick Haynes is also uh, making a big impression. Hopefully, this will be you know will help move us a step forward. And by the way, um, Governor Feist Symington, former governor of Arizona, has written a letter to the editor in response to this article by Nick. So we'll see if that gets published.
2: Is there any way, Leslie, that you see that we can break out of this constant reversion to? Just completely polarized uh, debate. I mean, it's funny. You look at that New York Times op-ed piece, and of course, what's really telling are the uh, the responses online, the the things which I haven't read much
3: of yet. I want to sit down and read them. I hardly read them though. What's the? I mean, a lot of them were very negative, weren't they? Well, so this
2: is the problem. What you have is, is essentially this polarization. You have on one side. Well, but look at Greer's Disclosure Project, blah, blah, blah. You have that on one side. Then on the other side, you have, hey, listen, why is the New York Times doing this? We're dealing with high oil prices. We're dealing with ridiculous food prices. We're dealing with, you know, foreclosure nightmare. Why is the New York Times devoting any op ed space to this at all? This is, I mean, people were very harsh in their criticisms of the New York Mm -hmm. Times. And, you know, so you had really, Those two polarized positions, and there were a few comments like your own that were more rational, more level-headed, trying to say, look, you know, let's take a centrist position about this. It really seems like, like so many other things in our society, it all comes down to people taking extreme positions and then defending them to the death, not really engaging in an actual discourse or debate, but really just saying, this is what it is, this is what I believe, if you don't believe it, well, then you're an idiot. And and
3: that's exactly sort of, you know yeah it's, I mean those two positions are based and you mentioned the word this is what I believe in, and that was going to be my response to you both those positions are based on kind of a knee jerk belief system right. not on a, a real examination of the facts and you know as you say a more sort of a centrist approach about what should be done and what do we really know and not know. Yeah, there's one extreme where the the people that say there's nothing to it, we shouldn't talk about, and the other extreme of the true believer types to say, "Oh yeah, you know, there's 500 witnesses because Greer says there is."
0: Yeah, I mean,
3: but but both of those positions are equally based on sort of a belief system that people are very rigid about.
1: Well, I think Greer wants you to believe what he says, take it on faith, and you know, he wouldn't even let you challenge him really. I mean, we had him on the show. And we challenge him as much as we could, but he engages in filibuster. So if you Hmm. ask him a question, he does his preordained routine. And one time he says, don't interrupt me, I'm not finished. Which, of course, has the subtext of, I have my rehearsed routine. I don't care what you're saying. I am going to repeat this pre-rehearsed routine. And the hell with you. But before I tell you any more... Hey, neighbors, the easiest online meeting service, GoToMeeting, just got easier. If you haven't tried GoToMeeting, now's the time, because the new version of GoToMeeting has fully integrated voice over IP. With this new total audio feature, you have more audio options by being able to conference through a phone or the web, save time, save money, and be more efficient. Hold an online meeting with GoToMeeting. Try GoToMeeting free for 30 days. Visit GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. Airy Radio, opening the door to the unknown. Download episodes of Eerie Radio directly from iTunes or visit their website at
2: www.eerieradio.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never
1: know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Leslie Kane. She's associated with an organization called The Coalition, of freedom of information, and this is an organization that is trying to get information about the UFO phenomenon, trying to use freedom of information, requests, lawsuits, whatever, to recover information that the government might have. So where do you stand with that, by the way, Leslie? Where? are does the work stand right now?
3: Specifically with the uh, Freedom of Information lawsuit? Which yes. Is where does that
1: stand? Let's just refresh our listeners' memories. Who's being sued,
3: and where does it stand? Okay. When NASA was sued, we filed a lawsuit in 2003 against NASA because uh, they were hugely stonewalling on the release of documents that they promised they would expedite for us. To, to give you the, the nutshell, Version of it, and there's, it's all every step of the way is very complicated. And there's a lot I could say about it, but just to give you the thumbnail sketch, as they say, in um, last October, what, what the um, lawsuit was settled in our favor, and um, which the settlement required NASA to release lots and lots of files to me, to pay my attorney's fee, and to explain any redactions on any files that they did release. And I've received probably all the files I may go back to them I'm allowed to go back with certain requests for possible other search terms et cetera but the both of the documents I've received and there and by the way I didn't mention that this was regarding the UFO Kecksburg crash case in Pennsylvania 1965 I don't know if you want me to explain that case at all
1: you know what I don't want to of course repeat the entire case but I think we have lots of new listeners always joining us on the show, lots of new members to our forums. And maybe take a minute to give us some basics of the case so we have a
3: context. Okay, because this, um, this case, as I mentioned, was in 1965 in a small town, little hamlet called Texburg, which is about 40 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And around uh, 445 in the afternoon, first of all, a fireball was seen over about six states coming down from Canada and then something landed in this little town. Whether the fireball and the landing are connected, we don't know for sure. Witnesses along a pathway saw this object make turns, appeared to be controlled turns. It was moving not super fast, but certainly wasn't falling. It was actually kind of gradually descending, made some turns, and then landed in, a, in the woods. And smoke was seen, et cetera, and people immediately called, the neighborhood called their authorities and called the media. That Something had crashed, and the firefighters were sent out, and it, it developed into this major event in that community where literally TV shows were being interrupted throughout the evening with bulletins about what was happening. People descended from all over the area, drove from miles and miles away to try and come and see what was going on. The military had come in about an hour and a half, or maybe an hour, hour and a half, two hours after the thing landed, had cordoned off the area around the landing site, put up roadblocks, threatened people with weapons. I mean, did everything they could to keep people away, including the media. Nobody was allowed access to down to the site where the thing landed. Um, and then hours later, the thing, the object, was seen being removed on the back of a flatbed truck, driving driving away very quickly from the area. Different people saw it at different phases of this event. Lots of people saw it in every phase. What's most interesting of course are the people that got down to the site before the military cordoned it off. And there were a number of witnesses that did make it down there, one of them a firefighter, who gave reports to Stan Gordon, who's an investigator in Pennsylvania, who's literally been investigating this case since the day it happened, nineteen sixty five. An incredible investigator numerous you know there's about 4 witnesses that took stand down showed him where the location of the event was you know where the object where they saw the object none of them had met each other before so it was a way for Stan to test the veracity of what they were saying. Well, they all took Stan to the same location and described the same object. So the evidence is absolutely overwhelming that something happened that night and that this, this event happened as people described it. The amazing thing is, that, and it was all over the press the next morning and blah, 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 and then uh, the Air Force came out with a statement the next day that nothing had come down, that they had sent a three-man team out to search for something that had started a fire. They didn't find anything and so their determination is that this was a meteor the thing that was seen over the over those six states this fireball that was seen in the sky was a meteor and nothing came down in pennsylvania
0: hmm.
3: so that's basically the uh, the incident and i, I just want to throw one yeah. thing
1: out there which is every time i hear this kind of thing where they might have picked it up on a flatbed truck i say you know what maybe it was one of them maybe it was a secret weapon a secret aircraft that they recovered?
3: Absolutely possible. Stan has been working on this thing, as I said, for over 40 years, and, and the more we investigate other possibilities like that, what, what's tending to happen is the more and more those options become you know, limited. The only option that really remains is that it was some highly secret something or other that even high-level officials don't know about or possibly some kind of ICBM misfiring that they want to cover up because it was dangerous. I mean, these are very very remote possibilities though. But mm-hmm. the door is still open. I agree for I'm not assuming anything. Um if it was some kind of a secret craft, you have to ask the question as to why all this time later they would not inform us of that. You know, what would be the problem just get this thing off there? Why they'd be willing to spend money and go to court? Rather than just tell us it was an experimental aircraft that we had, you know, 40 years ago. And, uh, blah, blah. So, you know, we don't know. But we don't know if we, you know, the point is not to make any assumptions. The point is, you know, that the, that we believe that people have the right to, to know what this was. And John Podesta, who's a big supporter of ours, also agrees. There's no reason for them not, if it is one of ours, there's no reason for us not to be informed of that. And in fact, by the law, they're inqui- required under the FOIA to either let us know what it was because records have to be declassified after 25 years or if they are if the records are classified they are required by the law to inform us that they cannot let us know about this event for reasons of national security or they're even allowed to say we cannot confirm or deny that we have any records on this but they are required to do one of those three things. When we filed our initial request to NASA, you know, they gave a standard response that you so often get when you when you write to an agency. We have no records responsive to your request. That's the famous line. That's a form okay. letter. That's it. And so they wrote that back to us. They said. We don't have any records, and we had given them like five categories for which they could search for documents. The irony of all this is, and the reason we were able to actually take them to court was because we happened to have—I had in my files already—documents that NASA had already released that are responsive to my request. We were hoping to get more, but we started with some things that we already had just to see what you know what else they would give us. So I was able to go back and send them those documents and say, "Look." You said you have no documents, but you do, because here they are. These documents are in your files, NASA, because we already got them from you a few years ago. And so they said, okay, so we filed an appeal. It's actually a legal step you can go through. We were able to win our appeal against their no-records response, and that's when they said, you know, okay, we're going to do an expedited search for you. They're very conciliatory about it. And they never did anything else, and we waited and waited and waited, maybe eight months or something, didn't hear a word. And that's when we filed the lawsuit. But my point is it just shows, you know, if this lawsuit has done nothing else, it has certainly illustrated the problems that we have with the Freedom of Information Act, it, that you are totally at the mercy of these officers. They can tell you anything they want. You have no way of knowing whether what they're telling you is the truth or not. There's no oversight. And so, you know, people are just forced to accept whatever they say. And only, it was only because I happened to have these other documents that we were able to push ahead with them, and only because I had this incredible attorney Who is willing to work way beyond the call of duty to win this lawsuit? But it shouldn't be that way.
1: And what's worse is even when they disclose information, you don't know how much you're getting. You don't know what percentage of that information is the actual reflection of the files or just some stuff they grabbed, say, all right, give them that. Let's forget about this.
3: And you're absolutely right. I mean, here we have the seven page legal settlement, which spells out exactly all the terms they're supposed to search and very, very specific, and by the way, anybody can read it if they want. It's on my website if they're curious to see it. And I have no way of knowing even with this whether every single search term they're required to search has been searched. You know, I mean, I have to accept what they give me and assume that they've done the job that they said they've done. So you're sort of, it's just almost like a crapshoot you know, but my belief is that these Kexberg files are not located in any files that are accessible to the people that I'm working with at NASA who are doing the search. I mean, it's just it's much too sensitive an event and they it could be in some other agency or some other part of NASA. NASA must have documents somewhere, but there are so many agencies within each federal agency. I don't know how many at NASA, maybe a dozen different places where you can go to search for documents and You could spend, you know, 50 years doing this kind of search. There's so many places to look.
1: That's part of the scam, which is you take the investigative information, you spread it out over 50 different agencies, some public, some not so public, and getting any picture of what's really going on is well-nigh impossible.
3: That's true. And as I said before, I mean, they, they are required to do one of three things, either release the documents, if the documents are classified, they're supposed to let you know that and tell you the reasons why, or they're supposed to write you a letter and say we cannot either confirm or deny whether we have documents or not if it's a really highly sensitive situation. Those are the three options they have, and they're not, obviously in this case, they're not doing that because we know this event happened. Anyway, that's where, it's, that's where it stands. I did get some interesting documents, though, on other UFO cases from
2: NASA. Oh, really? Like, what kinds of what kinds of incidents were revealed
3: in these documents? Well, actually, just two days ago, I got my last batch, and these were documents that had to be cleared through other agencies before NASA could release them, because they were their origin was from other agencies. These are State Department documents, actually, but and they're from different countries. We're from the embassies of different countries around the world, and there's one case in the Fiji Islands. I mean, there are detailed descriptions of these objects that are seen by multiple witnesses. There's a report by the you know intelligence branch of the uh, New Zealand Air Force on this case of this object that was seen. and um, you know they're interesting. I mean what i what I want to find out is whether any other researchers have other information. I'm sending these around to some of my my colleagues to find out if they have other information in their files that might add to what these cases are saying because these are incomplete files. One of them refers to photographs, and of course, the photographs aren't included.
0: Right. Which happened
3: by the way so many times with my NASA documents, even the ones that, that were not really that relevant. They they always had attachments and they referenced this thing and that thing and then or photographs and those things were not there. And you wouldn't believe too how many things were missing. There were twenty boxes missing from the NASA inventory that I had asked them to search. And I you know, a lot of this is I'm not accusing them of any kind of cover up or anything. I think it's just Disorganized things. There's so many files. Things get lost. They don't have enough staff to properly handle these things, and it's just sort of a, a chaotic situation when you get inside these agencies and these offices. Well, uh, they well, searched you... 295 boxes, and 20 were missing. 20 of the boxes that I had requested were actually missing outright.
2: So. Well, you, you hear about this kind of stuff all the time, Leslie. I remember hearing about the idea that NASA had somehow lost the master plans for the Apollo uh, spaceship. Basically, Mm -hmm. those are like missing now. They can't find them. And so, of course, the conspiracy theorists all jumped up and said, oh, that's proof that we never went to the moon.
3: Exactly. I was going to say
1: that.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I know. I mean, it doesn't, doesn't mean that. These things happen all the time. Yeah. Things disappear. Things are not carefully filed.
1: Well, we're talking about basic incompetence. And the thing is here, it's so strange here. We all go around saying that the government is incompetent, especially the U.S. government, but probably could be applied to governments all over the world. Mm -hmm. They are incompetent. They don't know what they're doing. They can't handle things properly. They can't handle sensitive things properly. But then when we ask them for secret information about UFOs and this stuff, we now say, yes, they're competent. Yes, they have all this information. Yes, they're deliberately withholding, and maybe they are. But I think it's a mixture of incompetence. There might be some deliberation involved here, but this is government, folks.
3: Exactly. I mean, exactly how I see it, and I just think, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm just dealing basically with clerks here that that have their little computer databases, and they go in and do these searches. That's all. It's nothing more than that. The whole system needs to be overhauled. The laws need to be updated. It's a, it's a major overhaul that needs to happen if anything's going to get any better. So, well, we, and we keep coming
2: back to the fact that there are so many issues right now that are occupying people's minds that to even bring this stuff up. I mean, Leslie, you had, you had written to me saying, hey, you want to go check out the article that uh, appeared in the, um, SF, the San Francisco Chronicle website, SFGate, And I went and I looked it up, this guy Steve Rubenstein, not doing an honor to his religious background, a nice Jewish boy who goes and writes a piece that is just just dreadful.
3: It's just on one of the, the worst I've ever read, really. Just, it's just as it's bad terrible. as they can get. Yeah,
2: Absolutely. Just terrible. Someone would absolutely, this guy could have been writing, you know, the social scene column. Exactly. And, he, and
3: I think he made up some of the quotes because some of the people have said that, the, you know, he makes things up. I mean, you know, it, yeah, exactly. He just talks to some of the sort of nuttier people that are floating around the, the rooms where they're selling books or something. And that's what he bases his article on. Right. Even so, though we had a press conference with a general speaking at it. He didn't even mention the general or quote him. He just sort of slammed his photograph, which, you know, the, the photograph, the famous photograph of, of General de Brouwer's of the triangular craft.
0: Mm-hmm. You know what mm-hmm. I'm talking sure. about? You know, which Absolutely. has been
3: General de Brouwer was the primary investigator for, like, years into the situation. That photo was analyzed by three professional labs, including government labs. He spent a long time interviewing himself, the photographer of that photograph. And this uh, this writer thinks he's in a position to completely write that off in one sentence. What kind of arrogance sure. is that?
2: It, but it's the arrogance that we see in coverage of anything where there is already a, a predetermined attitude. There, There exactly. is predetermination here, you know, and prejudice. I mean, this underscores the problem we have in bringing up this topic in any way to the mass media. The mass media is just going to go for the sensationalistic aspect of it, they're going to find the lowest common denominator you're gonna find the one nutcase in the whole room full of serious people the nutcase is the one that's colorful i mean this is the same thing that we saw with the three consecutive larry king shows where he brings on really credible witnesses like robert salas comes on to talk about the maelstrom incident and then you have bill nye the science guy who and i saw that episode i want to break the tv screen i I agree he he starts to imply oh well gee I heard that the operators working at the at the base that day were drinking. He right, and then he said
3: something about the air conditioning went out or something, didn't he? Oh yeah, some that
2: people? they came and replaced some equipment the day before. Yeah, that this was somehow responsible for taking down the ten crap. But when he when he brought up the allegation that some of the guys in the silos or drinking. even above ground had been drinking. I know. I mean, gee, that's a scientific statement.
3: if the people who investigated it, like Salas, would not have immediately found out whether that was the case or not. Well, yeah, I mean. Come and if on. it was, they, you know, that would have been factored in. You know, it's such, a, it's such an insult. But I have to make the point in response to what you just said, though, that I think yeah. the press conference that we, about presenting people to the media that go to the lowest common denominator, the press conference that James Fox and I put on last November, I have to say, I don't think that happened because one thing is we were very careful to restrict our audience you mm-hmm. it, it was not open to the public it was by invitation only and we only presented the kind of information that we just didn't give them the fodder that they would have needed to do that and, and it was covered all over the world and the, the coverage was all really positive so i just wanted to make that distinction there is a way you can do it where you can eliminate any kind of information that the media can use for that purpose
1: Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
0: You've entered another dimension, you've entered the Paracast.
1: We're talking to Leslie Kane. She is associated with an organization called The Coalition for Freedom of Information linked on the PowerCast.com website. David. So, Leslie, what? Uh, let me paint a, a,
2: a hypothetical situation for you. I'm curious to know how you'd respond to this. You get a call from Larry King's producer saying they want you to come on the show to talk about this topic, all right? Do you take advantage of the situation not knowing who you're potentially going up against? I mean... Uh, This is something I think a lot of our listeners would be curious about, because they they wonder how this process goes down, and given that you've been involved in the media for so long, I think your your insight here would be really valuable. I mean, do you go on knowing they're going to bring someone like Nye on the show who's going to be, you know, really just disrespectful and, and ridiculous? Do you set conditions for this kind of thing, or do you just go on with the assumption that any press is good press? I'm curious
3: it's a, It's a very good question, and that's the dilemma you always face, you know, and I know how the process at Larry King works, because I'm very closely associated with James Fox, who's helping them. I mean I've dealt with the producers there myself, actually. Personally, I do not relish the idea of going on, Larry King. In fact, they've invited me to go on, and I went on once years ago, and I really did not find it to be productive, and I would mm-hmm. prefer not to go on that show, honestly. If there was some reason that it was going to be some benefit or my group really wanted me to go or it was going to help, you know, make some kind of point that everybody felt was important, you know, I'd be willing to for, for a good right. reason, but I would prefer not to have anything to do with that kind of media coverage of this issue because I don't want to be associated with it. But that, And that being said, you know, it doesn't mean I'll never do it, but if I can avoid it, I will avoid it. Well, it's just a matter of him always asking the same Hmm?
1: dumb questions. Is it alien? Is it extraterrestrial?
3: Oh, I mean, his questions, you know, he's... The good thing about Larry King is he's really gotten, though, that there is something to this issue. And that's kind of important that a key person on a major television network gets it. The problem is that he... As you point out, he, the questions are absolutely ridiculous. He's still leaning towards the sensationalist approach, but it's a gradual education that has to happen with him. And I think we just have to put up with this. The other problem is they always run these clips of you know. I mean, remember the show oh. with Bill Nye? They were running clips of crop Circle. Oh. They run Billy air clips. Oh, you see now? you got it. Oh, yeah. And yeah, you know, every... and you want to hear what the people are saying, and you want to see their faces. Sometimes you even lose track of who's talking because they keep showing these images on the screen. They
1: want the to keep point- it visually active. <laughs> of having three or four guests who can spend time talking about exactly. a subject. They have 12 guests who answer one question, next guest.
3: I know, and I want you to know that James and I have both had discussions with the producer that we work with at the show. I mean, James more than I, but I've talked to her too, who absolutely agrees with us, who recognizes you know, all these things have been brought to their attention. And there's this huge chain of command within the Larry King live show. And basically the call comes from the very top, the calls about how things are going to be done. We can keep it expressing our reactions to that. And there are people there that agree with us, but they only have so much power to change the way the show is done. And so you have to sort of deal with what you're given, you know and make the choice about whether it's more positive to go on than negative. I mean we've had these discussions, there are way too many guests. and the other thing is we've been told that it's the policy of the program to present what they call quotes both sides of the issue. Mm. Of course, bringing on someone like Bill Nye is not presenting another side because he doesn't know anything. It's not really, you know, with UFOs, you've got these skeptics who don't know anything. It's not the same thing as bringing in, like, two sides of a political campaign or something, but that's sort of the way they look at it.
1: One other thing I'm wondering about here, with regard to Larry King, does he have any control or authority there? Or is he just a wind-up doll who gets on and does his thing?
3: That's a very good question. I don't know to what extent he personally has authority, but I don't think he's the ultimate, he's not the ultimate, person that decides from my understanding. There's a whole level of very high level people there and they're the ones that call the shots. But I don't know to what extent Larry has power. But you know, Larry probably sort of is very focused on his show getting viewers and being entertaining. Otherwise you think he wouldn't ask these questions all the time. About, you know, so, why, why are the, you know, aliens this and aliens that, you know, and maybe I'll be the first one to, to talk to an alien on TV. And, I and you know, if saw. I was on the show, I would I would point out immediately, if he asked me a silly question like that, I would immediately address the silliness of the question. But, you know, what, if he's doing the last show, I noticed this. He would ask the question before they went to the commercial. Did you that's notice right. that he would say, now we're going to ask our panelists, you know, why do the aliens want to do blah, blah, blah? We'll come right back. And then he won't ask the question, actually, to them, but he puts it out there to make the listener stay and wait for that answer.
2: That's right. They're old school techniques, and, and I think that we have to really paint this in the larger picture of the way that everything is framed on there, the fact that they are knowingly showing bogus footage. There is interesting stuff that's not been determined to be bogus that they don't show, they show bogus stuff they always have in the little id piece as you come back in the little goofy ufo with the ridiculous sound effect flying over I know, the and cows. The
3: cows. Yeah, yeah exactly we don't have any control and i i don't know if they knowingly know it's bogus they just have a bunch of footage in their archives and the bottom line is they don't care whether it's bogus or not. Right. The technician that pulls out the clips probably has no idea what's bogus and what isn't. They don't. They just want to pick out the, the ones that are the most visually interesting to their technician, and they plop them up on the screen. Here, wonder, they're not showing them because they're authentic or not authentic. They're just showing them for entertainment value.
2: Well, and I think that the, the point, then, is that the whole thing, the way that Larry King is not bringing on people who are going to necessarily foster a uh, useful discussion. He's bringing on people who he knows are going to have a, basically a good argument. This is kind of like the car crash nature of television, which is don't worry so much about the facts. The facts are really not relevant. Worry about the entertainment value. But you see, the thing is that when we talk about this topic and the way that the mass media treats it, this is like going to above topsecret.com, or this is like listening to Coast to Coast. Basically, these are venues that treat this the way that I think people end up interacting with this content, which is entertainment there are very few people it seems who are really interested in having rational discussions about this they're they're clearly in the minority most people look at this as an extension of their entertainment you know it's like oh gee the ufo thing is slightly more interesting than movies about ufos it's somewhere in between you, know, you look at this stuff like larry king it's somewhere in between close encounters of the third kind and the x files
3: right When you're speaking to a mass audience like he is, that's that's the approach he's going to take. Right. Because that's what's going to appeal to the most people. That's why I don't want to have anything to do with that program.
2: They're selling ad time. That's what it's about for them. I know. You know, it doesn't really matter. Again, you know, with Larry King, Larry King is the kind of guy who has on... All sorts of ridiculous people on his show. He does. They, this is tabloid journalism. It's
3: tabloid, really? and it's gotten more that way. I mean, I don't think it, yeah. you know. But you're right. He has all these Paris Hilton types on, and oh. you know, absolutely. It's. I mean, he has some good people on, and then he has a lot of those types. And I particularly, you know, I don't think his questions are all are often the most the best questions. I don't know. So I don't quite understand why he's so popular. Quite honestly,
2: I think when you look at the mass media, Leslie, and and I know you have so much more experience than either of us in this topic, the bottom line is that the media really in many ways reflects the values of the people who are the consumers of that media. And when you look at it from that point of view, it's not a pretty picture. People generally at this point in time face so much stress in their day-to-day lives that when they turn on the television, I don't think they really want to be educated. They just want to be distracted.
3: And, and, and they just want to veg out and relax and be entertained. And then that's a legitimate thing to want to do. If you can say, want that, they should watch a movie or something.
1: Well, Larry right. King is not news. It's an entertainment show.
3: Oh, well, I know. I mean, but you're sort of mixing up news and entertainment, and that's a problem.
1: Well, that's, of course, why, for example, was it The Daily Show? It's considered one of the most popular news shows, <laughs> and it's basically a satire show, although I they know. have legitimate guests on there
3: right i'm a big fan of actually stephen colbert who comes on after the daily show but anyway well
2: Uh, that's a great example here's colbert who is satirizing the right and the right has started to to think that he's actually on their side this is how delusional people are
3: that is so funny that's very very funny I know, but it's. it's they'd have funny. to watch him for a while. I think if they watched him for a while, they'd have to figure out that he was making fun what? of them. And actually, what? he he presents the opposite perspective in the you know, couched in the in the language of the right. It's very clever how he does it.
2: it. It's clever, but I think I think if you're a cultural anthropologist, you look at this and you think, wait a minute, are are people really that out of it? where they all of a sudden think that he's one of them while he's very intelligently satirizing them, they think he's one of them I mean, how far does this rabbit hole go? And this is where I think with with any discussion of the paranormal really the only I think the only paranormal topic that people will take seriously is the one that they have the good branding and indoctrination into, which is religion. You know, Mm -hmm. that's the one paranormal supernatural topic that people will consume in a really serious way.
3: Right, because it's accepted by the culture and they're brought up with that That's right but the irony is, in other cultures, uh, the other types of paranormal events. So we we dealt with that at MUFON. There was a speaker from Peru there, Anthony Choi who was also one of our panelists in Washington. And he, you know, we had some very interesting discussions with him. I did about how the culture, this paranormal reality, which just goes way beyond UFOs in Peru, is Absolutely. just integrated into the culture and they grow up with it. And there's never any questions in people's minds that it's real or that it's, you know, it's just accepted as part of reality. And it's all got to do with the culture and how you're brought up and what you're taught to believe. And it's just a totally different perspective. He was telling me this story about, you know, the, he's been documenting these lights, that were on these tall mountains, you know, mysterious lights that would appear at night and they'd be blinking back and forth and he went up to the villagers there and they said, Oh yeah, we've been you know, they've been seeing them for generations He says, Oh yeah, we know these are just the the mountain lights talking to each other. <laughs> and it's like yeah. they sort of accepted this as reality. Oh, the the mountain lights. It's the spirit of the mountains, it's their something, you know, and that's all real to them, as real as anything else. That's right. So it's all That's a matter right. of culture, and I guess you're right. In this country, religion is the accepted paranormal, you know, venue. That's it's the accepted reality, and so people buy into it. So, so let's think about we- the virgin birth why is that so accepted as real? Why is that accepted as real? And UFOs are not when we have hard data that they exist?
2: Listen, this is what constantly comes up with people. You know, if I end up talking to people out public about this, you know, they don't know about my interest in the topic, but somehow it will come up casually. And you always get the question, do you believe in UFOs, right? Um, And I look at them and I say, well, do you believe in cars? And they're like, what? I said, well, do you believe in, in cars? Do you believe in the internal combustion engine? And they're like, well, what are you talking about? I, I use a car every day. Go, oh, okay. So you you don't have to believe in it because you interact with it, right? They're like, well, yeah, I, I don't, it's real. I don't have to believe in it. Okay, so what if right now a silver disc showed up in the sky in front of you and then moved away faster than your eye could even determine how fast it was moving? Would you would you believe in it? And they say, what do you mean, would I believe in it? Well, you mean if it like was right in front of me? I said, yeah, if it's in front of you, do you believe in it or not? And they were like, is this a trick question? And I said, well, that's my point.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, For people who have had the personal experience, and this is, I think, where we come to the bottom line of this whole discussion. For people who have had an actual experience with any aspect of the paranormal, it is no longer a question of belief. This, it, it just doesn't fall into that anymore.
3: I agree, Um, and I I wouldn't even call these you know sightings of physical objects as I wouldn't categorize them as paranormal events. Really, I mean the O'Hare airport incident. You know, it's a solid physical object that makes a hole in a cloud. You know, it's physical. It's not really paranormal in a certain way. Well,
2: it, it is physical, but yet see, this is where the problem here, and this is a perfect example. It is a physical object. It is a physical object that moved at a speed that should have made a sonic boom and didn't. It left a hole in a cloud, okay? Mm -hmm. Um, So right there, there is now this absolute uh, sort of contradiction. It's a physical object, yes, but when it moved, it didn't do what a physical object should do.
3: Exactly. It doesn't behave in the way that we understand the physical world to work. That's correct. You could say it that way.
1: That's exactly right.
3: I always try to keep the paranormal out of it anyway, if I can.
1: But We are identifying paranormal here as something that goes beyond what our concept of normal is. Now, there are things that we do today and accept as real today that we might have regarded as paranormal or supernatural or something 50 years ago, 10 years ago, whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay,
2: Wireless. Fair wireless communications. You know, people walking around. I mean, can you imagine what someone from... 40 years ago, 50 years ago, would say walking, seeing people on the street walking around talking to themselves? Has everybody lost their minds? Exactly. What's that yeah. thing in their ear? You know. Uh-huh. And, and whenever I see that thing, I always use my cultural reference, which is I see people with the little Bluetooth thing and I think they're Borg. That's what I think. I'm like, oh, uh-huh. they're Borg. They're getting, they're getting instructions from the air, and they're talking into the air. I mean, uh-huh. so everything
1: is, is point of view. David, I have to tell yeah. you, really, resistance is futile. There you go. Yeah, there you okay. go. But also look at the Star Trek communicator, Kirk to Enterprise, where he opens up his Motorola razor phone. Of course, in 1965, <laughs> we didn't have a Motorola razor phone. But right. that's no. what it is. Understood. Basically. Yeah, that was sure.
3: a good good point. I just it's all about just sort of the language that you know I'm very sensitive to the language that I use when I talk about the phenomenon, and I would always try to. Avoid even you know, using the word paranormal, but that doesn't mean that the definition that you're presenting is not fair. Right. It is.
2: So We work very hard on the show to separate UFO from extraterrestrial. We think that that's a really uh, important thing to do. And problem, of course, being that the triumph of things like movies has made it very difficult to divorce these two terms from one another. Extrater- you mean UFOs, alien beings? And it's like, well, we well, stop. <laughs> There's
3: that. absolutely no association there in reality, you know, I mean, or, you know, minimal. I know. I mean, I agree with you. I, I always try to, and that's what we did at our November press conference also, which is one of the reasons why I think we did get such good media coverage is because we did not equate these things with extraterrestrials. We said every panelist simply made the point that they did not know what it was, period. A lot of the times, it's hard to offer any other plausible explanation, as so, the Cometa so, Group pointed out in their in their report. You know, right. it's the most logical explanation, yes, and it's fair to say it is the most logical hypothesis, and it's a valid hypothesis. But nonetheless, okay. we don't know for sure. Leslie,
1: I'll well, tell Leslie, you what. Before we start hour number two, let me ask you to tell our listeners where they can get more information about the Coalition for Freedom of Information.
3: Okay, well of course the website is always a place. It's, uh, the website is www.freedomofinfo.org. That's freedomofinfo.org, short for Freedom of Information. And we've got all kinds of information about the November press conference, including a link which allows people to get a DVD of the full press conference if they want to do that. Excellent. And um I've got stuff on the NASA lawsuit, the settlement agreement, uh, and also my, uh, which maybe we can talk about when we come back a little more, this effort I'm involved with to, uh, try to get a new government investigation opened up, which I'm very excited about. We've got some new support for that, which I'll share with you when we come back.
1: A cliffhanger.
3: A cliffhanger! I thought you might like that. After all, we're all uh, we're acting like Larry King here, right?
1: Right. Coming up next on the Paracast: Are they alien? Are they alien?
3: We'll discuss that after the break.
1: Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Viering. All right, so we have to ask you, Leslie: Are they alien? We're talking to Leslie Kane, and she's associated with the Coalition for Freedom of Information. We will not have 10 guests on the show today. We will not ask that question in in a serious fashion. But you're working, you're telling me here. Now, let's go back through the history here. Now, we know that the government has had public and perhaps secret UFO investigations over the years. Project Blue Book stopped working, say, in the late 60s. We had the Condon Report which said no truth to it, although a lot of people who actually read the Condon Report and not the summary came out with the conclusion that there were a lot of compelling cases here. So you're telling us, and we're now going to show you how we are different than other shows, when we promise something we try to deliver most of the time. Leslie Kane, tell us, what are you trying to do with regard to starting a new government investigation?
3: Well, we are trying to persuade uh, the government, and I encourage people to read the document that sort of spells out our rationale for this. It's right on the home page of my website. Um, I have a a team of people, and what we want to do is get the government to to open a new official investigation, just an agency within some other agency, such as NASA or the Air Force, um, that would have a, a few staff members that when cases come up, They can be investigated officially. And we do not want to repeat the problems of Project Blue Book, obviously. We would suggest that if such an office were to be opened up, that there would be a board or a commission or some kind of group associated with it that would be almost like an oversight board that would uh, involve civilians, people from universities, maybe somebody from NARCAP, you know. I mean, again, this is all, I have no idea if this is going to come to be. This is our ideal scenario. But, um, we really believe that the first step in the u s. government ever acknowledging that there's this, the reality of this phenomenon is to acknowledge that they're worthy of investigation. By opening up an office, they're making that statement. And um that's sort of the first step, uh, and we believe that we have the chance to facilitate that because of the fact that these government agencies in other countries have already set up official bodies. Are already investigating these incidents have accumulated a lot of data suggesting, as Nick Pope wrote, that there are aviation safety issues and national security issues involved. These officials from these other countries want the U.S. government to participate and, and cooperate with them in a global effort to get to the bottom of this so i mean as far as we're concerned and the people that are supporting this document which includes six generals from six different countries and um high-level people from around the world including america all believe that this is an, a very effective way to engage our government is to invite them to be part of something that's already ongoing in other countries that has revealed data that's worthy of further investigation and to sort of make it like, look, you're the superpower, we need you on this. We're not accusing the government of anything, we're not asking for anything called disclosure, which by the way, I know you mentioned that earlier, I've come to and myself and many others have come to completely dislike that word disclosure and not want to have anything to do with it. We're not accusing the government of being bad. We're just asking them to join the rest of the world in this in an effort. And um it's not gonna cost a lot. It just means that when something happens, like what happened at O'Hare Airport, there's a team on hand that can provide the right resources to investigate such an event to find out what as much as they can about it for the benefits that Nick has spelled out in his op-ed piece, which we talked about earlier. So, you know, civilian organizations cannot access the kind of resources that the government can to properly investigate an event, and and they can't get the kind of quick response that a government agency can get to data and to interviews with with pilots and so on. So that's what we're trying to make happen in a nutshell.
1: Okay, in a nutshell, here's my devil's advocate comment or question about this. So if the government has something secret going on. That thing that secret could be either secret government research projects, secret weapons development, other aspects, things they can't talk about. Would they be inclined to do this? Or if they did do it, it would be maybe just a public relations maneuver. And there are people who felt that Project Blue Book was nothing more than a public relations maneuver. It basically had just a couple of three people working for them. And all this stuff was happening elsewhere. And that stuff was under deep classification. I don't know the specific classification ratings, but under deep classification, and we will never learn about those.
3: Right. I mean, you know, it's a valid point. I think the difference is, for one thing, I think if there's secret projects going on and secret technological stuff going on under the contract with some, you know, big aerospace company or something, whether we went out and checked out O'Hare is not really going to affect the more technical secret stuff that's going on I, I don't think they have to be in conflict and I think the difference is now and you know I may be wrong but this is applying my best uh, you know what I think is the best thing to do here to this I mean it, it we have so much more knowledge now than we did when project booboo was set up obviously The other thing we have, which they didn't have then, is my group involves officials from other countries who are investigating these phenomena in in the way that we would suggest that the U.S. government would do it. And hopefully these as individuals would be involved and would give input into the creation of such an effort here in the United States. And, you know, for instance, any meetings I get on this with high-level officials, I plan to bring a couple of these people with me. So this is not going to be something that's just sort of like, you know, a couple of air force people in an office with nobody paying any attention from the outside to how they go about doing things. We have the whole template of past failures of Blue Book now behind us to, to be able to use as as an example of how not to do this. And I think the key thing is the fact that we do have the cooperation from these other countries. I don't know to what extent our government will like that or not like it. But Hopefully, if we get the right kind of people supporting this to try to make this office actually open up, we're going to be able to bring in these people from the outside, from other countries and from within our country, which will provide the proper kind of oversight to prevent the mistakes being made that were made before. And part of the charter of this, hopefully, you know, this is all our intention, I mean, I don't know, but would be that any, any studies that are done on an event such as O'Hare would be made public, as they have been done in all these other countries. So we have a precedent here around the world, and we have a team from around the world that are actively involved in this willing to to play a major role with the United States. We didn't have that before during Project Blue Book. So times have really changed now.
2: Well, Leslie, based on what you just said, do you think maybe it makes more sense then to really create an initiative? uh, I don't want to use the word disclosure either, because I have problems with that term as well. But do you think maybe it might make sense to try to get at this from some other entry point than the United States? It just seems like with the fact that you know the French government, the British government, various governments in South America, including the Brazilian government, willing to open their files up, willing to go on the record with things, you think maybe what it really makes sense to do is then to take the effort overseas to create more of a groundswell of support overseas and then use that to gradually bring pressure on the United States government? Because I think part of the problem is that when we talk about this, I think a lot of people assume that what's really going on is that there is some organization that is uh, tied into government money but not tied into government oversight that actually has control over this and that by trying to attack the government to you know get doors open, that really what's happening is you're hitting a level of impenetrable con- concrete you're never going to get through because, well, you know, what we think of as the government is this big amorphous thing. And really, maybe there's a group inside of this that has its own firewalls set up, so to speak, so that you can't really get in if you try to use official methods. But maybe if you look overseas, there might be a couple of conduits there that haven't been covered up. Do you understand what I'm getting at here?
3: Yeah, I mean, you want to, I, I sort of hear two points that you're making. Why don't you just re- summarize very quickly what you, if you're asking me a question well, or for a comment, summarize again okay. just what you want uh-huh. me to comment on.
2: I'm Mr. Convoluted sometimes, I'm sorry. No,
3: no, no, if it's, it's, we're all talking, these things are coming to us as we say them, so sometimes right. it takes a while to formulate your thoughts, so that's fine.
2: Well, okay, so w- what you've got is an attempt to, to get the government to open up investigations. So then the question is, does the government have the ability of actually investigating I, I don't want to call it a rogue organization, but let's just call it what the what people I think will relate to that may be okay, maybe there is a rogue organization within the military, within the government that is handling this, that is not does not answer to presidents, does not answer to Congress, just basically is completely insulated from all of that. Mm-hmm. And so when you're going after the government to try to get answers, really you're hitting this wall of concrete that you're never gonna get past, maybe with the fact that other foreign governments seem to be opening up more, maybe the way to get into the rogue organization is to find a chink in the armor outside of the United States and work our ways back in th- through that conduit. Right. You see what I'm saying? Okay. Mean,
3: yeah, yeah, no, I do. I mean, like a couple things. I think, first of all, if there is this rogue organization, which is very possible that, you know, deep buried somewhere, there are people actively, a small group are actively working on this, this office that we're talking about could happen parallel to that. We're, in order to set this office up, there's no need to have anything to do with that rogue organization, which obviously, we would have no access to, and any right. member of Congress that we might try to get to support this effort would have no access to. I mean, it's like they're independent worlds from each other. Yes. And whether there's some little office set up in NASA, say, or Air Force or United Nations, I don't know where, you know, with, with a few staff members ready, you know, to investigate events that come up, I, I, I mean, that's, to, to me, in my thinking, that's entirely independent, at least initially. Of any kind of secret operations or technological studies that may be going on in, you know, black projects or whatever. Right. And I don't, I don't think those folks really, I don't know what they think, but I can't imagine that they would have an issue really with this. I mean, this is down the road, you know, one would hope that maybe those two things would converge more. And so, down the road, there might be some moment where there will be an official acknowledgement, you know, but initially all we can look at is step one, which is to get this agency set up. And, and and I'm using sort of the French government as a model, which is the purpose of them is really not to bang on the doors for secret information that the government may hide, at least initially. The purpose of them, as they're initially set up, is simply to be available to investigate reports that come in that could be significant. For instance, the O'Hare Airport case, Stevensville you know, Texas or whatever. I mean, the big incidents that come up. And the way they do it in France is, they have an office like i suggested with a few staff members and you know where they keep all the files and everything and where people can report things and when some when a case comes around they have a whole board of people in all the different areas that are needed in france such as they have psychologists they have soil scientists you know, meteorologists, physicists, people that can specifically task to deal with witnesses who are worried about ridicule, and they have a whole team from all these different disciplines, police officers, that they can call on to use whatever specialty is needed when an investigation comes around. And so really the focus in setting this up would be... Just a body like that, so that we we have the capability to check things out. We're not no longer going to go around and say things are weather, you know, when five pilots tell us they see a disc, and ten, are, you know, dozens of people. Really, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going to send a team of, of officials into O'Hare Airport. We're going to interview the pilots, get a collection of data, find out whatever we can, get the radar reports quickly, rather than having to wait like the civilians do. And we're going to release a report. And if we don't know what the object was, we're going to say that. And that's what all these other countries
0: do.
1: You're raising a lot of fascinating possibilities here, like a gussied-up Project Blue Book, one that really does something, which would be very fascinating and certainly very useful.
0: This is Timothy Green-Beckley, otherwise known as Mr. UFO, reporting live for the Conspiracy Journal. And we have a special offer for the listeners of the Paracast. Want to receive our publication for free? Conspiracy Journal and Bizarre Bizarre sent to you via snail mail. And all you have to do is email me at Mr. UFO at WebTV.net. That's MRUFO at WebTV.net. And we'll send you two of the most exciting publications. But we do need
3: your actual address because these are physical publications. And you'll enjoy all the latest articles by some of the leading researchers in the field as well as up-to-date information on the
0: latest book and videos and it's all for free or drop us a line mr ufo at web we want to hear from you if you have a comment or question about the paracast send it to news at that's news at and don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
1: We're talking to Leslie Kane. She's working with an organization called the Coalition for Freedom of Information. I think the title says it all. And she's pitching here for a new government agency, which would be Project Blue Book, but trying to do something for real. And of course, that raises the entire question here, which is, have you approached anyone in government about the feasibility of something like this? Who do you go to?
3: Okay, well, that's that's sort of the process we are involved with now. And by the way, I just want to add to what I said before. There may be certain things within, within a UFO event that need to be classified for good reason, for national security reasons or whatever, you know. But the whole purpose of this would be to let the public know as much as it's possible to let them know about everything, like they do in France. And yes, we are, I mean, I have certain contacts, and one of the people that's been helping us is, of course, Governor Fife Symington. The sort of the strategy here is to, you, to work with some of the people that I know, and I have been supporting this work, to get meetings, hopefully with uh, a senator or a congressman. And we have all kinds of uh, lines into various people and and see what they would say. I mean, if we could get an
0: endorsement
3: by an elected official like that, then the next step hopefully would be to have that official facilitate a meeting within the agency that they might believe would be the appropriate one and get us to the right people. And this, of course, isn't just me. It's a team of people that I'm with. Uh, Get us to the right people to... Hopefully, uh, you know, speak to the agency that might be in the position to do this. We sort of, it's it's all a matter of taking these various steps and it's a fairly slow process because you've got to arrange for meetings with very busy people and then they have to suggest something else and then, so, so far, I mean, one, one person I have met with recently was John Podesta who was President Clinton's former chief of staff who's been extremely supportive of the whole NASA lawsuit. Situation because he's an advocate for government openness and very you know been an advocate for Freedom of Information Act reforms and has reported our effort from the beginning and um, he actually suggested with respect to this new initiative a specific member of Congress that a senator that he suggests that we meet with and so you know he he recognizes this as a valid. Undertaking, and we're now working with him to see to what extent he's able to help facilitate a meeting like that. And I have other people. Fife Simington is also going to be facilitating some meetings with some elected officials. He's he's had some personal things he's had to deal with for a while, so it's taking a little while. But, and I have another important meeting I'm having with somebody actually next week, who I'm not in a liberty to say who it is. You know, these are the kind of steps you have to take, and I'm just. I've got a list of people. I've got a list of potential elected representatives, which for various reasons and through various suggestions of contacts that I feel might be receptive, and we're just going to take every step we can and see if we can even get one meeting with an elected official. It would be a huge step forward.
1: Let's look at the crazy political situation here right now. We have Barack Obama, Senator McCain. Of these two individuals which one would you think would be most receptive to UFO research in terms of having an agency of this sort?
3: I don't know. I really, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine that they would really have anything to do with it necessarily. I mean, if we went into the Air Force and they said, okay, you know, there's, there's all this pressure from, you know, generals from around the world. We can't look like we're shirking our responsibilities. Okay, we're going to set up an, an office here. And, um, you know, we'll have some meetings with these generals. And I don't know if the president would have anything to do with it, really. I, I, I mean, do you? I, I don't know enough about how these things work. But, I mean, all kinds of things go on, whether, no matter who the elected government is, they kind of go on anyway.
2: So well, I think we have an example we can study here in recent history. We look at uh, what happened to Dennis Kucinich with mm-hmm. his admission of seeing a UFO. I mean, well, it, gets, really yeah, it
3: really gets, it hurt him. And they him. love to laugh at Dennis anyway. UFOs are well, not. They love to pick on him in the media. Absolutely,
2: yeah. absolutely. I mean, it, it was just, you know, that he, he tied himself to Shirley MacLaine. I
1: know. Said this stuff. You just want to pull your hair out. It, it It's just. See, uh, what I was going to ask Yeah, but Kucinich, by the way, David, not yeah. to interrupt, but I am anyway. Kucinich was regarded as marginal in terms of being a real candidate. So no, I don't I think I, no. that. Yeah. I don't think that that really necessarily made him more or less of a serious contender he was no way i'm not out saying no i'm beginning. not saying he was i'm just saying look at
2: the reaction to what he said as if anybody in in congress
1: would say it i'm just saying you know oh, you sure. look the at message the message is there responding. saying if you mention something of a serious interest well, we'll put you at the bottom of the list. I, I
0: well, guess, you know,
3: this, what, what, this congressman would never have to go on the record. As I mean, if he facilitates a meeting, say, with some a general in the Air Force, say, about this right. setting up a potential, office, mean, he would never have to be on the record as ever having done that. And I can imagine maybe, you know, the bottom line is that we get this office set up, and if there's various congressmen along the way that want to help but don't want to be uh, public about it, that's fine.
2: Right. That should probably be the, the proactive approach to this because I think that, yeah what you'll find is kind of like going to an ex conference where people say one set of things publicly but the really interesting stuff gets said off the record that's mm-hmm. where you really find out well and i think you know like anything else i think half of them say it off the record because they don't want it linked to them because it's just such goofy stuff they're just kind of like spreading you know little little subliminal memes i think and they don't want to be responsible for it because the stuff is just too goofy At the same time, I think there are other people who are genuinely concerned about talking too much and and talking too much about this topic. If there's one thing that's pretty clear is that anybody who's willing to engage in this topic publicly, and certainly, Leslie, you're probably knowing this more than we do. I mean, this is fairly radioactive stuff, especially if you're trying to have a legitimate career, especially if you're in government and you're trying to woo voters all the time. This is a radioactive
0: topic.
3: And you know, I think the key is the key thing on that to deal with that problem is to present it in such a way that you minimize any kind of what you call goofiness or you know radioactivity about it. I mean, when you stress the kinds of points that Nick has made, use the word UFO. You know, you keep it as hardcore as a sort of the way we've written it in our document that people can read. you know it makes it much easier for people to engage with it when you when you use a certain kind of language and i think that's one of the key things that i wish more people would do because then you know it's safe it's it's a safe you make it as safe as you can for whoever you're dealing with and that's one reason why if you're stressing the issues of aviation safety and and so on it gives these people you know, an excuse, a reason to take it seriously. And you don't have to talk about the other aspects of the issue. And, well, this you know, is you also positive, yes. But and, mm, but it's not a
0: matter, then, of any sure.
3: believing anything or anything weird. You know, you have a general from Belgium sitting across the, the desk from you explaining what happened when he was, you know, in the Air Force investigating these sightings and why he thinks it's important that this be addressed. It just doesn't have that goofy quality to it.
1: Okay, but how do you get from here to there? Because, okay, say we do open up this sort of agency. Okay, Mm -hmm. so Project Blue Book, Phase 2, whatever you want to call it, we open it up, we receive the cases and like that. Now, there are going to be a lot of competing interests behind the scenes, I think, that are going to make this a very difficult thing to do on an extended basis and get the information. And the question would be here then, no doubt, they will take cases which are obviously have nothing to do with any unusual Phenomenon, And they'll certainly emphasize those as we understand that. Yeah, they really. I don't know. I'm- and the second thing would be, OK, if there's a chance these are weird, these are due to some kind of unknown phenomenon, then you have to consider where they go from there. If it's a matter of national security, then suddenly it's going to be classified because they can't tell you that mm-hmm. this is a matter of national security there's an unknown aircraft or a fleet of unknown aircraft coming into our airspace what is it where's it come from they can't tell you that they well, can't they tell can you also, that because they can if, say
3: they don't know also
1: well of course they can say they don't know but that can this also open up
3: because that's what they do in these other countries they weren't sure. to say we don't know it's an unknown object and yes we're but you're the united we'll willing- states of
1: america mm-hmm. and you can't say unknown here because if you say unknown here then everybody starts to ask okay Is it a secret weapon? Is it the Iraqis? What is it?
3: I know. Well, I mean, I know we have a particular hubris that doesn't like us. We don't like to say we don't know something, and it implies that maybe there's something out there more powerful than we are. But nonetheless, all I can tell you is our goal is to move it towards that. I'm sure if this does happen, and then that's a big if, it will be, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but we're going to do everything we can to make it as close to the kind of model that you guys are proposing which is what everybody would want and i think regardless of whatever problems may develop down the line the very fact that we we could set up an agency in the first place that's acknowledging that there's a phenomenon worthy of study here that is a big accomplishment in itself and i mean that's a statement that our government would be making well which it is also i guess would a position it's been sure. holding for since nineteen seventy And that's a huge policy change. And we have to cross that line, and then we're going to deal with all the the problems that you're raising of how to set it up and what problems could develop, you know, five years down the road. And the first step is just to see if we can make it happen.
1: Mm, And also just not having the press say, little green men, ha, 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 ha. ha, (laughs) Hopefully
3: that would change, too, because if, if our government's acknowledging there is a legitimate phenomenon here, That's all they have to be staying through this, and we're you know we're in cooperation with other countries on this. Maybe that will change these little green men phrases. Who knows? I mean, you know, but it's it's a policy, it's a government policy change that would have been accomplished, and I I think that's a very big uh, step in the right direction, regardless of whatever problems may develop down the line. You know that in terms of how this is going to be carried out. Who knows what will happen as a result of that? If this thing is set up, I mean, there could be all kinds of offshoots from that that will develop that we can't even anticipate that will be positive.
1: Well, I guess it's worth trying. if For bringing in more
3: pressure from other countries. You know, there could be all kinds of things that develop in other countries. And and if we get a lot of resistance to this, we are going to, we already have the support of other countries. And, And I've had, you know, detailed discussions with many of these people about this. But if there's a lot of resistance and we have trouble making this happen, we, well, there are ways that we can draw further on these other countries and try to bring more pressure to bear. But at this point, we we don't want to have to do that because it will make that we want to make this an invitation that looks appetizing
0: mm.
3: to the people that we want the support from because that's a much more uh, workable strategy than. You know, these people that go around shouting, oh, there's a government cover-up and, you know, screaming and yelling and calling up government agencies and accusing them of things. It's just not productive to do, no matter what your personal beliefs are about it.
1: Well, screaming and yelling, yes. Brain Tonic. The smart antidote to head fog, the world's first organic botanical-based caffeine-free think drink designed for mental focus and clarity. Tastes great, super safe, with no caffeine crash. Just great fuel for your cranium. No chemical preservatives, no sugar, no fake anything. Check it out at www.maxsales.com slash tonic. That's spelled with a T-O-N-I-Q. That's www.maxsales.com slash tonic again the spelling T-O-N-I-Q. Check it out today.
0: Hi, my name is Richard Dolan. You're listening to the paracast with my two friends Gene Steinberg and David Biedney.
1: Let's scream and yell the fact that Leslie Kane, investigative journalist, joining us on the PowerCast this week, she is connected with the Coalition for Freedom of Information. I think the title says it all, what they're trying to do. They're also working on trying to establish a new U.S. based government agency to investigate UFOs in public, to be the central clearinghouse, to hopefully interact with scientists and others in trying to get this information. Of course, then we get to the other crazy subject, which is we don't want to use the D word, disclosure. And the question, of course, says, what is what is disclosure? I'll tell you a the anecdote about that. Can sure. I do that?
3: Please. At, sure. at the Mufon conference this weekend, they had the, you know, you have to wear these badges when you're a speaker that say, you know, you, you, you wear them around your neck and they say your name on them and then you, they say speaker. And then there was a little tag that hung under them that said disclosure on it for some reason. Just the word hanging there on the tag, and we were all the speakers were going around either removing it entirely, or some people took off the the DI and they had the word closure on their badges, or somebody else had the word sure. But people were very, there was a whole buzz around the conference of people, did, and they were saying, why did they put this on, or we don't like this word? And it was kind of a uniform response. So I think the word, unfortunately, I mean, I've shunned it for years, but it's sort of just become sort of a tainted kind of buzzword that I think, you know, sort of the activist types use who may not be employing the proper tactics, in my opinion, towards getting this job done. So I just try to, and it's very associated. I mean, Stephen Greer was the one that brought that word to the forefront back in the in 2000 when he did his press conference. So I think for all these reasons, it's just best to stay away from it.
1: It's been tainted
3: it's been tainted i mean well, a lot of people agree with me i'm not the only one that takes that position
2: so absolutely and, and it is usually associated with greer and unfortunately what you then see is that it leads you down a path of uh, 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 basically discrediting anybody who appeared on that original disclosure project that thing that he did where you had the mixing of credible witnesses like robert salas uh, right. with people who who were goofy and so this, of course, is another huge problem in in all of this, Leslie. In that you have, even like at the MUFON thing in San Jose recently, you had you know very credible speakers, and then you had uh, clowns and sides and sideshow people, and and it seems like it, I haven't been to that many UFO events, but at every UFO event, this is apparently what goes on. You have, you know, a, a handful of people highly credible, lots of compelling evidence. And they're mm-hmm. thrown on a stage next to someone who is selling the Metatron Harmonizer, and and, okay. and this is it's as if th- what I get from all of this, mm-hmm. I have to I have to say that th- what what I keep seeing is this effort. It seems like it is an organized effort to completely poison the pool, and and this is and maybe maybe it's not really an effort. Maybe it's just you know when you have more than three humans in a room. God knows what's going to happen. Anything could happen and will happen, but you see that kind of a thing. You see guilt by association. I mean, I could look at, I'm looking at the symposium schedule of events right now, and I see some really credible people, and, uh, y- y- you know, y- you have really, really good people like Nick Pope, and Nick, if you're listening to this, respond to my emails, you freak.
3: Oh, if he Love doesn't, I'll, Med- I'll, help, I'll help facilitate well, that for you.
2: He, he's, he's been a little weird about that, but, but actually... Uh, at the first ex-conference I attended, uh, Nick and I had some really good laughs together. I, I think he's a really great guy. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, people get the idea that Nick is not letting on everything he knows. And and I, I personally kind of have that same feeling as well. I, I think Nick knows more than he's letting on. I think with a lot of people we speak to in this realm, they know more than they're, they're willing to admit publicly, mm-hmm. which is also real fascinating. But, you know, you have people like Nick, What's interesting is that when all of these conferences, I never see someone long, uh, like Ted Phillips, who, you know,
3: Case. Right, I know who he is. Yeah, yeah I, there, I mean, there there are certain people that will never go, and there are certain people, I yeah. guess, that aren't invited. I don't know how that works out. Well, yeah. I mean, I know, think Ted Phillips would go if he was invited to a, a conference. I, I think so. I don't so. know.
2: I think so. Well, that's no, a he, guy he, with tangible
3: credit. No, he should have been lives. there. That's a very good right? point. I'm going to put him on my list to re- recommend to move on for their next conference. I think that's, that's really absolutely. important
2: because people say, you know, what's, where's the physical evidence? Show us something I agree real. I He's got stuff that's real, just like, you know, there is some credit. You know, people say, show me one good UFO photo. Well, I can show you a handful of good UFO oh, photos. Sure. They, don't, they don't tell you anything. They just, oh, I mean, look, I, there's I something all-
3: that... I researched a lot. I've looked into a lot this year to UFO photos because I was helping James Fox with his film, and I learned a lot about what the best ones are that have been, you know, and they're there, including the one from Belgium, which is, I think,
2: Absolutely. Very interesting photograph. Absolutely. But I think what
3: you said about mixing people, I mean, I know that I think, and I think I'm going to give the move on people the feedback that I I don't think that uh, Nori and the UFO hunters were a good idea, but I think that they're really, they're trying hard to just break even on a thing, and they think it brings people in. Well, I mean, it I does. think that's why they had the, the only reason they would have invited George Norrie was just to be a draw for people. It's not be, you know, and it would be ideal to not have to do that. But then you might not have any conference at all because they couldn't afford it. So then, what do you do?
2: Well, that's a it's, that's a real tough one. Obviously,
3: it's a tough that's one because tough. we don't have any big donors in this, you know, willing to support the right. If we had the donors to support conferences like this, we would never. Have, they'd be all be much much better. I mean, not they all, but certainly the you know the Mooson one would be. I don't well, has know, anybody
2: I mean, called Spielberg up? Has anybody uh, yeah. actually got on the phone to Spielberg?
3: He's had a reputation of not being very generous over the years. Really? Around the time of Close Encounters, when he got all this assistance from UFO researchers, apparently there were some requests made, and he wouldn't give any money. Hmm. So I don't think he's going to do it.
2: I might have to make some some trouble there, because he and I have a close mutual friend. Maybe I have to make some trouble there.
3: Well, if he could fund a, a conference, he wouldn't have to do anything except just put money in. We could have you the know, best conference we could ever want with no George Norris, you
2: know? Well, let me ask you a silly question. I'm going to I'm gonna get you on the record here because I'm curious. So if you want to have a really good three-day conference and you want to have the kind of financial support for that conference that would make it so that you could leave Uncle George at home to play with, with his dolls, what kind of money would we be talking about for a three-day I've, conference? I've, I'm, just I'm just curious.
3: I've never put one on, so... I all mean, right. you know, you got to rent the hotel no. and you got to pay all the airfares and stipends for people. I mean, gosh, right. I don't know, 100 grand? 100 grand, you think? I, I mean, I'm really, I mean, I, I have no well, idea. advertising,
1: I, too, of course, you'd have to count it. I've advertising. never thought
3: about it. I've never been yeah. the one to organize a car. I mean, I know how much it, it costs us a lot to do our thing in Washington, I'll tell you that. Right. That was all provided for, by the way, by donors, by people who wanted to support this. I mean, we, you know, that's why we were able to do it the way we wanted and the way it should have been done.
2: Yeah, I want to put you on the spot. How much did it cost you to do that thing in
3: Washington? Well, I mean, I did. The, uh, James was James Fox was the money guy for that. His, you know, people who were producing his film, and I, you know, I right. say I think it was at minimum fifty grand, probably more.
0: Hmm. Somewhere between right.
3: fifty and a hundred. I mean, we had to. We were in a hotel for four days and nights, and we got people from all over the world. And he had that may have included costs for filming. I mean, this is stuff you'd want to do anyway. You want to document the whole thing, so. Sure. I think if it was a hundred grand. You could do a lot. You know, James for some has people, of, That's nothing. You know, for some no, people well, that's no. a drop. Well, well certainly. That's. What, I'm just
2: curious. Like, you know, what is that magic number that's required yeah. to go do something like this? Obviously, you could get a half a million bucks and spend all of it. You can certainly spend all of it, you know, if you're if you're taking out full page ads. I mean, you know, a full page ad in the New York Times is at least a hundred grand, if not more.
3: Oh, really? Uh, I thought it was. I didn't realize it was that much. Yeah.
2: I think it's a probably. I I have to guess. So of course, it depends what section would be in if it's on a Sunday or yeah. not. But yeah. Yeah. it's probably about a hundred thousand um, dollars. Well,
3: I would not be like. I don't think we'd have to go that far
2: in the publicity. Yeah. Well, see, I'm just trying to wonder, like, what will it ultimately take? I mean, we're doing the little bit we can with the Paracast. You're, yeah, to you're try
3: doing, to,
2: doing a lot. Well, well but to, just to try to change the tone of the conversation. But I sort of wonder, what would it really take? But I want to get back to something I was going to ask you before. I wanted to throw a hypothetical situation out to you to try to gauge what people would do if there was some sort of revelation, because ultimately what you're really trying to do with all of this is to try to get some information about from the government about what they know about this, okay? So that being the case, let's say that September of 2008, one morning everybody wakes up, turns on their TV to find an image of a huge disc-shaped craft or a cigar-shaped craft parked over the White House. It's just there, it shows up. What do you think, in your experience dealing with people inside of the press, and the consumers of news, what do you think would happen? Paint the scenario. How do you think people would well, respond to this?
3: It would probably depend on you know how, how visible it was, how long it was there, and all that kind of thing. I mean, if it came for just a couple of minutes, like at O'Hare, and then went away, or no, are you it's talking just, about something it's more dramatic?
2: More dramatic. It is just hanging there, and it is not moving, and it's just there. As if to say, if we look at the O'Hare episode, Which, what, it was like 15 minutes this thing was hanging in in, in the sky in the flight path. This thing was not being subtle. It was hanging in a place that was obvious. Of course, this, of course, brings up I won't deal with all the ancillary questions of where are all the photographs that people supposedly took. Forget all of that. The thing hung in a place that was very obvious, that was, to my understanding, essentially getting in the way of air traffic. This thing is there. It makes itself seen people saw it and then it shoots away fairly dramatically mm-hmm. all right so if if you step back and try to look at what that was about assuming that happened the way that it was reported it seems and again it's hard to assign any kind of motive or reality to this but it seems like this thing wanted to be seen that it was it, it was saying here i am i'm hanging above your most your busiest airport and here I am, look at me, now I'm
0: gone.
3: I don't think you can assume that, you know, they were there for that purpose to say, to give a message, hey, here I am, now I'm going to go away. I mean, they could have been, if indeed this was some kind of, you know, craft from somewhere doing something, it was, uh, they could have been there doing some kind of survey and, and had some reason to have to go to that particular height. And whether, whether they were seen or not might have been absolutely irrelevant to them. So I, mean, I don't think you can read any kind of a message into it.
2: I try to never make assumptions about any of this stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm very careful about that. But what I'm saying is that, yeah, I'm not assuming that was the case, but it certainly almost seemed that way. Um, it seemed and like they didn't
3: care anyway,
2: right? Well, let's say they didn't care anyway because we've got nothing that could actually keep up with them. It's kind of like right. what happened with you know the infamous Phoenix Lights thing where you know what was reported as the Phoenix Lights, the 1030 event, appears to have been staged – But the point is that earlier that evening, Symington, along with lots of other people, a few of whom we've had on the Paracast, have talked about this massive, huge craft flying at a very low altitude. And again, I'm not not ever in the show going to assume to know the motivation of whatever these things are, Mm -hmm. but I think it's interesting that this thing is essentially moving slowly at extremely low altitude over a fairly populated area. So you could say, okay, maybe they don't care. All right, that's one way of, of, of parsing this. I think another way to interpret this is, uh, gee, let's show the monkeys what we've got. You know, let's, let's kind I mean, of make no, a,
0: it, It's all
3: speculation.
2: Everything regarding this topic is speculation. Everything.
3: Well, not every single tiny thing. But I mean we have data, we have physical you know, we but anyway, that's a whole let's not go down that road no, no, right no. now.
2: I, I understand. Listen, I, I understand what you're saying. We we worked very hard on this show to make people understand that outside of a determination that there's something in the skies that's most likely not ours that it's hard to make any kind of assumptions or come to any kind of conclusions about any of this, which is one of the reasons we get so frustrated with people who go into the exo-politics thing. Oh, look, we have to create some sort of uh, diplomacy. It's like, you don't know what these things are. You don't know what motivates them. I had that argument with Bassett. I'm like, you know, you say that these are absolutely positively extraterrestrial craft. You don't know that. Nobody knows that. No one knows that.
3: Mm-hmm. So I agree. You know, and he, so, and even think, if you happen to believe that, he's made the point, well, I'm convinced of that. That doesn't justify your going nice. out and, and laying that on everybody else and expecting them to right. accept it just because you do. Right. So all of it that doesn't understood. Work. It's just not effective. It doesn't. It's not effective when you're no, trying to reach Absolutely. Uh,
2: we're in no disagreement figures. there, Leslie. We're in no yeah. disagreement. All I'm saying is I'm painting a hypothetical situation. And I'm not claiming you're going to know what's going to happen. I'm just curious about your... I know.
3: I mean, I don't, you're right. I don't know. But, you know, I, I can imagine if, that, if there was this thing that just sta- sat there, the first response yeah. is going to be for us to send up planes, jets, right. to go up and, I don't know, try to shoot at it. Or, you know, I mean, we're going we're to scramble something to go up there. Right. Uh, it depends how big it is. You know, it's a mile I mean- long.
1: It's a mile long.
3: Then I dare say we probably wouldn't try to shoot it down, because. I would hope. So, well. um,
1: Back in the 40s and 50s, we did send. Well, things
3: if, out if there thing. was a mile-long thing sitting in clear view over the uh, White House, I think there would yeah. be a lot of yeah. panic about that and terror about that. If it just okay. sat there and it was really visible and fairly low, Are you talking about some kind of Independence Day type of huge thing? I don't want to
2: reference, that, want to reference that movie because I hate that movie. It I sucks.
3: hated it with a passion. I but, hate that you know, movie deeply. So do I.
2: <laughs> so, um, no, I'm not, we're not talking about science fiction.
3: We're talking, we're talking about, about, let's say an O'Hare object that's just much lower and just sits there. Okay. I don't know how big you're talking. But if you're talking about a mile long, then that's not the right, O'Hare object. get it.
2: Listen, we can split details here. Okay, it's an O'Hare object. It's a disk 50 feet wide, 60 feet wide. It's hanging above uh, uh, the Empire there. State Building. It's just
3: hanging there. Yeah, so I suspect that the first thing would be jets would be scrambled to go. But in terms of the media, I mean, obviously the cameras would be on it and it would be absolutely all over TV. Right. Right? And, um, I think, you know, there'd be speculation about what it is. And there'd be, uh, planes going up and who knows if we try to communicate with it. They try to get transponder data and all this stuff and, and it depends how long it stays there. Oh, a week? Yeah, don't you think we'd get it? We'd shoot it down by
2: that? <laughs> I mean, Well, see, this is see. Th- I don't think that's even that... feasible. I mean, none of it's uh,
3: feasible. I, I don't know. You can hey, imagine it staying there for? It weeks. only happens in we're South America. A, we're playing a game
1: here. We're playing a game. this David, is a game, David, yeah. that's the, that's a the question I want to ask you about because you yeah. raised something. For fifty-eight years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
2: conventions are completely, utterly boring. Come something new from a whole bunch of people who are trying to do (laughs) something new.
0: The Culture of Contact 2008 UFO Festival. (laughs) It is reality. Paris, David Bassett, David Biedny, Dr.
2: William J. Burns, David Hatcher Childress, (laughs) Patricia Gordon, Richard Dolan, Bud Hopkins, Dylan (laughs) Blodno, Michael Mann, Melissa Jeff Ritzman Giorgio Sucalos. <laughs> J- Jeremy Vainey and Farrier Duzo. Special presentations by Combustion Motor Corporation Masahiro Kata, and the world premiere of the silent but deadly truth solution of truth For more information and to order tickets please visit www.culturecontact.com. Yeah. Once again that's www.cultureofcontact.com Card subject to change You could be screwed financially Probably not, though.
0: you David never know what's going to happen next.
1: We're talking to Leslie Kane, and she is connected with the Coalition for Freedom of Information. And we've covered a lot of ground about what they've done so far to get information about a UFO case back in Pennsylvania back in the 1960s, also possibly establish a new U.S. government agency for UFO research. But now, David, okay, so we have the craft that's up there for a week or whatever. It seems that we have cases like that in South America. Really, really blatant, I don't know about a week, but just blatant large craft being seen in South America, but we don't Uh always have that here. Let me, let me explain why I'm bringing this up.
0: No, I think up, that's true. Okay?
3: They might sit there for hours anyway. Let's say Plenty it's Plenty of hours time for there. people to get lots of photographs for and for Jess to go up and check it out anyway. Right.
2: The reason, let me please tell you the reason I am bringing this up. Okay? There is a huge amount of computing time, uh, government computing time, military computer, computing time, devoted to something called modeling, scenario modeling. All right. mm-hmm. This is where the big, powerful supercomputers get sold into, um, in, in, into applications that require very complicated modeling of all sorts of different phenomena. So we know that there are computers put to the task of modeling, let's say, uh, specific uh, types of battle engagements and to try to determine the outcome of them based on a series of, Uh, parameters and and qualifications. Now, I'm going to guess, and this is a guess, I'm speculating, obviously, I'm I'm, I'm stating that ahead of time, this is pure speculation, but I'm going to guess that some modeling like this has been done on the part of some portion of the military to determine what people would do, how would society, how would the markets respond to such an event. I'm going to guess that that this has happened. I could be wrong. I always reserve the right to be wrong on the show. But the point I'm trying to make with all of this is that I suspect that the reason that there is such a a high degree of secrecy, I don't think this, this secrecy happens in a vacuum. I think there's reasons for it. And I think the reasons for that probably derive from some sort of a model the military is infamous in its use of models to determine policy it, it is and this is i'm not mm-hmm. making this up this is a fact mm-hmm. certainly in any kind of a uh, strategic uh, military engagement uh... so many de- decisions are made based on modeling that in many cases it's human beings essentially looking at the results of of the simulation going alright um... this is probably what we should do i mean in in, in essence I think that happens a lot, and I'm guessing that maybe that has happened with regards to this potential scenario. And and what you said, Leslie, was very telling. Now, I, I threw an extreme example, a huge crap, let's say, hanging for a week. What would happen? I think the study of our reaction to that is worthy of discussion for no other reason that a lot of us think we know how people would respond to this. We think that people have been conditioned enough by movies, by the UFO lore, to perhaps be open to this. But I suspect, in the end, the reality is that we would see a tremendous amount of fear and a tremendous amount of insecurity, which creates a very problematic, very volatile situation. And I know that when you, know, when you talk about these topics in this light, people say, people who are interested in this stuff go, well, I could handle it. It's like, well, yeah, maybe you can, but the average person... Maybe. They can't
3: anticipate it either. They may not. They may feel the fear themselves. That's right. You can't anticipate how you're going to respond to something that earth-shaking and that you know unknown.
2: That is exactly correct. And and so so here's the point. In the the discussions with people on the Paracast, what you end up with, people who have these experiences, you kind of can break it out into two different groups, people who have seen stuff, interacted with things, and they're absolutely terrified. They're very afraid. I tend to give those people and those accounts a lot more credibility than I do people who claim, like Greer, that they interacted with things and uh, they felt the universal brotherly love fill them up and there was not a bit of fear in them. I think that's disingenuous and dishonest. I don't well, think I that's I agree a, with
3: you on that. Yeah. I mean, so, I, I, so, I, too, support the, the people that described experiences. You know, I, I, I go along with you on that. Yeah. Okay. In terms so, of the so fear if, if,
2: element. If, if we agree with that then if you start to look at the secrecy in that light, all I'm saying is that it starts to make a little sense. And I'm not saying I'm happy about that, mm-hmm. okay? But I think that, and I've said this on the show before, if the function of the military at its most basic level is to provide security to the country mm-hmm. and the people in this country, if, that's what the mili- if that is their mandate... And you, you talked about how words are very meaningful to you. Okay, well let, let's let's have this out. If the military is, to, if their job is to provide security, then the opposite of security is insecurity. And at that point, if you have a situation where anything could potentially make people feel insecure about their safety, then it is the military's job, their mandate to erase that potential. And I think that ultimately, if there is justification inside of the military for the large degree of secrecy, I suspect that is the internal reason for it. And Mm -hmm. and if that's the case, all I'm saying is that it's gonna make any kind of an attempt to really get at the reality of this, to, to uncover what our government knows, exceedingly difficult, maybe even impossible.
3: Yeah, I mean, I agree with you. I've had this discussion before with numerous people that I work with about whether actually maybe keeping the secret is not such a bad idea that maybe there are legitimate reasons for it. And that maybe if I knew what they knew, I would agree with them it should be kept secret. Right. I think that's totally conceivable. That does not mean that I'm gonna, you know, close up shop and stop doing what I'm doing. I still think that there's a bigger reality here, which is that if indeed we are being visited, eventually it's going to be discovered and that our, you know, humanity has a right to that information regardless of its implications. And, you know, I'm going to keep moving along, but I I really do respect that, the uh, possibility that there are very legitimate reasons. And if I ever came up against that, and if I was somehow privy to these people who have the knowledge and and sat down and they explained to me what was going on and why they were keeping Mm -hmm. it secret, who knows, I might completely change my position on this. Right. That, to me, is a very conceivable Reality and I, I thought about it a lot and I, I, I agree with you that there could be very good reasons for keeping this secret. But the bottom line is pilots are interacting with these things. At some point, you've just got to at least acknowledge that there's a physical phenomenon and we don't know what it is. I mean, you don't necessarily have to release the fact that, oh, we know for 50 years that they've been like abducting people. Let's say that that's real. Right. You know, you don't have to release all of that, but you know, you, how long can you just hold out when the whole, you know, when all these other countries are investigating these things?
1: Sure, and but just you not can't. Even, you can, you not you even say, acknowledge
3: that there's a physical thing in the sky, you know?
1: But Leslie, if you say we don't know what it is, that creates uncertainties too, because well, people say, well, what is it? Is this if it's not the Russians? It's not the Iranians? It's not the Chinese? Is it extraterrestrial that can create more problems than it solves by saying, I don't know? I don't well, know may know, not be politically correct.
3: Well, in this country, but then, uh, then we're different from every other, We're different from the U.K. and France and other, you know, sophisticated countries on that because they've done it there. And, you know, it hasn't caused any kind of panic or, you know, and, and it would justify the government saying, Well we're going we're gonna to do some studies on these. And, you know, so, so they could say so far there's been no danger, there's been no threats from any of these objects. And, you know, Britain has determined that they don't consider them to be a defense issue, for instance, even after they've studied them. So, you know, they're just flying up over O'Hare for three minutes and going away. I mean, it's not something you've got to be afraid of, but we think it's important to try to find out more about this phenomenon. That's all they have to say.
1: But you can't say this does represent a possible defense issue because that creates panic, even if it's true.
3: Well, I know. I mean, you know, what do you do? You're damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? Exactly. But, you you know, you can talk to the Brits and the French about this who have, have taken a very different tact, and they haven't had, you know, panic or any problems dealing with their population about this and taking a more open approach about it. So, I mean, it's got to be better to do that than when you have something as black and white as what happened to O'Hare and telling people that it's weather. I mean, that distills a terrible mistrust in our government that we already have anyway. But it just reinforces this trust and, and reinforces the fact that our government lies to us about something that's really black and white here. It's better to just say, well, yeah, there was some kind of aircraft over O'Hare. We just we're not sure what it was. It was only there a few minutes, and it it was it seemed to be an unusual aircraft, and our radar didn't pick it up. And maybe we need to develop new radar technology so that we can, you know, expand our capabilities to be able to. And which again was a big theme of what a lot of people are saying now in the militaries around the world. You know, improve the radar, but you know we're not sure what this thing was. I don't think people are going to panic over that. I think they're, they're, they're going to be pissed off when, people, when the government says it's weather, when it obviously wasn't.
2: But the thing, Leslie, uh, here's the problem with that, and, and, and I've thought a lot about this topic. And and listen, we think it's worthwhile asking these questions. That, that's why we have the Paracast to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that when you live on the coasts of this country, you don't really know what's going on in the heartland, as it's sometimes called. You don't really, you know, as you move away from the coasts and you go inland, it gets a little scary. It gets a little weird. And and I think well, I'm that I'm actually a coastal person,
3: so you'll have to. I've been on the inside, but I'm much well, more
2: on the coast. But I'm a coastal so. person too. The one time I drove across this country, I really had my eyes opened. I really mm-hmm. did, and I realized, you know, the way that I think people think about things is not reflective of the way perhaps the majority, defined as 51 percent or more. Of the people who make up the citizens of the United States, feel about and think about things. I think that that part of the problem, and, and certainly not to, I don't want to take this in the political direction, but so many of the problems that we suffer from right now as, as a nation relate to that great vast Middle America um, and the way that it thinks about things, the way that it treats things. I mean, this this problem is is much deeper than just you know the consideration of UFOs and their reality. I think that in many ways, as a country, as a society, we're in very deep denial about a lot of things. And any attempt to move away from that denial is met with a tremendous resistance, a tremendous resistance. And something that I saw last year that just it scared the bejesus out of me, no pun intended, was a documentary
1: called Jesus Camp.
3: No, I, mean, I, I you know that. S- I saw that one. Yeah, oh, no, I've seen boy. that. That was That's very, very frightening. I I agree
1: with Ooh. you. I wish we can go into this in detail. We don't have the time. But Leslie, before we throw you out the door with Elvis, you
3: we're know, throwing you, you out the, the door
0: with on,
1: Elvis. On, by the way, huh?
2: What? So
3: you have those filmmakers on that made the the movie Jesus Camp? That would be an interesting yeah.
2: topic. That would be a very interesting anyway, topic. I don't. I, I think it's, it's almost spiritual.
3: I think scary. it is
2: actually. If that's a problem, is I consider it a paradox. Well, topic. then we'll exactly. go to that, Leslie.
1: For <laughs> those who want to learn more about the things that you do and what you're planning to do, where
3: do they go? You can go to my website, which is freedomofinfo.org. Freedom—it's short for Freedom of Information.org—and uh, all kinds of information up there, right on the homepage. Very easy to access. So. I would encourage people to go on and there's also a donate button. It's the first time I've ever done this. About a month ago, I finally got my webmaster to put up at his insistence a little PayPal button for anybody who might want to contribute to this effort because I have uh you know, I can't afford to be jetting around and going to meetings with all these people. I can't fund that out of my own pocket. So, anybody that wants to contribute, uh, that would be great.
1: Click donate, use PayPal. PayPal, you don't have to be a PayPal member anymore, by the way. PayPal has a section now where you can just enter your credit card information and do it. Something I learned in seeking our own donations, you know, as an experienced person and that kind of thing. But, Leslie, we do appreciate your words of wisdom and the discussion and the exchange of information. And, you know, as I said, I don't know whether a new government agency in the U.S. is going to be any good or not, but it certainly can't hurt. And I wish you luck in making it happen.
3: Thanks very much, and I have to say I find both of you guys exceptional. I mean there's no other interviews I've done that come close to the level of discussion that goes on with both of you. So I really appreciate what you're doing.
1: And we well, appreciate you,
2: coming on. We we really appreciate what you do, and if there's any way that that we can help or if our audience can help, you know, you know where to find us.
3: Thanks very much. Well we'll be keeping in touch on everything. Thank you. Alrighty.
2: The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Pietney
1: is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for
0: a new adventure in The Paracast.